Oh, there we go. Okay. So I have to retool my. Whew, I'm really on. Uh, I have to retool my intro a little bit because um, I was I was talking to Matt just in, during the greeting section, and he, and he was walking up to me. He's like, "Oh yeah, Juneteenth. You're doing Philemon. Of course, that makes sense." And I'm like, "Yeah, Matt, that wasn't on purpose." <laughs> um, I made that, con I've been prepping the sermon for about six weeks, and I made that connection yesterday. So, and the reason that I made that connection yesterday, I don't, you may not have noticed this, but, but I'm white. And that was pointed out to me very clearly by a dearly beloved uh, Christian brother of mine who's black. When I learned just a few years ago that Juneteenth was a thing, that um, people have been celebrating it for like, over a hundred years, but it was not at all on my radar. And he's like, oh yeah, in fact, you know, you may not know this, black families usually don't make just a huge, I mean, it's different friendly family, but they don't usually make a huge deal out of Fourth of July because, yeah, 1776 didn't really change much for most black people. And I, I never really thought about that. So, and there was just sort of this eye-opening moment of like, well, there's this holiday that you guys like cherish that I didn't even know about. And, and yet that kind of, that plays into exactly why we're doing this series. Uh, the reason I picked this text was not because I was doing Juneteenth, because I completely forgot about it. The reason I picked this text was because we're doing a series called Church Matters. Uh, it's, a, it's a pun. The, the idea is one, church matters, it's not optional. When, uh, when Christ joins himself to a person, when someone joins Christ, they, they join a church. Uh, it's not optional. It's vital. It, but we're not just saying that church matters. We're also talking about church matters. We're, t we're asking questions like, what is a church? Who can join a church? And so I wasn't assigned, hey, you need to preach Philemon. I was assigned, you need to pr answer this given question. We've asked, you know, is it loving to do church discipline? Is it uh, why do we preach the gospel? Those are some questions that we've done before. And I'm not actually going to tell you the question that I'm speaking to yet. I'm going to double down a bit more on why we're doing this series. Before I put that question in front of you, I'm going to um, talk about some conversations that I've had in the last couple of years. In the last two years, I've had two conversations with two different people of two different ages from two different churches, and yet it was the same conversation. Uh, one person told me, I, uh, my circumstance is I voted for Donald Trump. I s actively, vocally supported Donald Trump, and the church that I'm in is a largely Democratic church, and it became very clear to me that was not okay. Um, I, I'm not saying that I agreed with Donald Trump on everything, but I agree with him on some things, and it was very clear my opinion was not encouraged, was not welcome. There was no place for me to be heard. Within a few months of hearing that, one way or another, I had another conversation, which was the same conversation. Somebody said, yeah, um, I voted for Joe Biden. I, I don't agree with him on everything, but I agree with him on some things, and I voted him, and I supported for him, and I go to a largely Republican church. And it became very clear that that 
my opinion was not wanted. No one wanted my voice to be heard. And so the question is, or not the question, but what do we do with that? The reason we're talking about church is because these are the questions that keep coming up. And this is not hypothetical, theoretical stuff to quibble over. This is, these are my brothers and sisters. Both of these individuals that I just described to you loved Jesus, obeyed the scriptures. I'd seen them repent, change their mind in light of the scriptures. I would have gladly welcomed either of them into my church, but they did not feel welcome in theirs. So, so what then are the non-negotiables? Like, are there, are there any? That answer is yes, but Evan answered that last week. We do have a non-negotiable gospel. That gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is the world's master. His servants stole from him and ran away from him. My reason for using that language will become clear later. And he bears the cost for them, paying their debt and dying their death so that they can be reconciled to him. That is what we call the gospel. Okay, that is the thing that decides who's in and who's out. That Owning that, clinging to that, is what makes the difference between who's a member at the family table and who's just a dinner guest. That is what marks us out. But if that's what marks us out, then how do we deal with the Trump supporter and the Biden supporter? How do we deal with the older member and the younger member? How do we deal with the single and the married? How do we deal with the black member and the white member? How do we deal with the black member and the black member who don't see that distinction the same way? How do we deal with the white member and the white member who don't see that distinction that same way? How do we deal with the Jew and the Gentile? How do we deal with the poor and the rich? How do we deal with all of this difference that is so very different you don't even realize how different you are? You don't realize what your friend has been celebrating for the last hundred years that you didn't know existed. How do we deal with that? There's two pitfalls you can fall into with this. One is you can just dive into that difference. You can just say, oh, I want to talk about that. You know, maybe you think they're wrong about because they might be wrong about something. Maybe you think they're deeply wrong about something, and that is the issue that always comes up when you talk to them. Or, or maybe you're not even trying to persuade them that, that this thing is wrong, but it's sort of all that you can see. You, you don't see a person, you see a project, and they can feel it. You ever been on the receiving end of that when you know you're someone's project, that they're trying to fix you? Or maybe it's they're not even trying to fix you. They think it's fascinating that you're from this different background and that they just have all these questions. I, I, I do this to people. And then you're not so much a project, but you're like an animal in a zoo that they're just going, ooh, that's interesting. So... Those of you who are not like me, avoid that like the plague, and so you do the other thing. You say, well, we're just not going to talk about that. We're not, we're not going to talk about our differences. We're only going to talk about the things that we have in common. And that works so long as you have a whole lot in common and you don't have anything distinctly different. You ever been on the end of that? Like, have you ever been like, oh, yeah, this person I get along great if I don't bring up this, 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 or this, 
ever, boy, I feel the love of Christ right now. Like, that, so if those are the things that you don't do, what do you do? The question that I've been assigned, other than do I, did I turn my clicker on, the question I was assigned was how do I love church members who are different from me? And I was looking at this question, they actually suggested a different text, which is a fine text, and I'm like, there's so much in this text, but I have to come up with my own illustrations. I want to use the Bible's illustrations. And so I'm like, I feel like I want to go to Philemon. Then later found out I was going to be preaching on the holiday that celebrates the emancipation of slaves. Uh, now, if you've never read the book of Philemon, you might not know why it's so important that we're talking about slaves, but you'll get there soon. So since the early days of Christianity, one of the things that has made the world take notice is this very thing, is this unity and diversity, that the slave sings with the master, that the poor sings with the wealthy, that Jesus, the Jew sings with the Gentile because Jesus is turning the world upside down and he's taking these people who have nothing in common and he's giving them one single affection. That affection is him. And so because I want to talk about this unity and diversity, because I want to talk about how we love members who are different. I want to start with a man named Philemon and two facts about him. I want to start by agreeing with the Apostle Paul that Philemon is a true, genuine, beloved brother, saved and set apart by Jesus Christ. That's fact one. And fact two is we can start by agreeing with the Apostle Paul that Philemon was a slave owner. Now, on this day, June 19th, when we celebrate the abolition of slavery in the United States, we're going to simultaneously delight in Philemon as our brother and grieve that Philemon is a slave owner. Because at the time that Paul is writing this, Philemon is both. And I'm going to be honest, as a 21st century American, as which Philemon is neither 21st century nor American, so he's very different from me, and I look and I say, how is it even possible? How is it even possible that somebody could be an actual Christian and an actual slave owner? Now, I, I will just in briefly mention, um, many of you know, Roman slavery was very different from American slavery. It was much less monolithic. Um, I can go into details on that offline, but I don't really want to distract from that because while those differences are significant, and I do grant that, it, it was still slavery, okay? It was, it was still people owning other people. It was still humiliating. It was still dehumanizing. It, it still involved human beings sold at market wearing absolutely nothing except a small placard indicating their abilities, their defects, and a six-month money-back guarantee if you thought that the property was mismarketed. That's not a joke, so I'm glad you didn't laugh. That's history. And this industry in Rome was as brutal as it was common. Maybe 30 to 40% of people were, at least for part of their life, a slave in the Roman Empire. Slavery accomplished everything that we kind of do with electricity uh, and fossil fuels. And so it was sort of taken for granted that these sort of quasi-people, quasi-machines 
were so necessary you didn't even think about it and so useful that you didn't see them as people. Speaking of useful, it's actually what the name means. Um, we're going to read about a slave in the story named Onesimus. Literally, his name means useful. It's a very common slave's name. It's like naming a human being socket wrench. Because they're not a person, they're a tool. Okay? That's the essence of slavery. And in, in the hands of, a sin, of sinful man, slavery is as evil as the slave master. And we look at slavery with abhorrence because it's what happens when you give free reign to humankind. So as we look at the situation between these two brothers, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at the problem of what's going on. We're also going to look at the person, who they really are, and we're going to look at our path forward. So, we actually do not have crystal clarity as to what the problem actually is. Uh, as, it, as is often the case in the New Testament, we are sort of reading a letter and we're, we're playing telephone. We're, we're looking at one side of a phone conversation and we're trying to figure out, based on what's said, what's probably going on on the other side. So, if you've got your Bibles open, I'm going to bounce around several verses. These are sort of our clues that we can point to to sort of figure out, okay, what is Paul actually speaking to here? So, in verse 16, we say, Paul tells us about Onesimus, welcome him no longer as a slave. Okay. So Onesimus is a slave. Also, he has a slave name. Verse 15. He says, perhaps this is why you were separated. Okay, so part of the issue here is there was separation. And if Paul is, is guessing at the reason, probably implies that it, this wasn't part of Philemon's plan. There was a separation between slave and master that was not planned by the master. Okay. Also, Paul is saying, now I wanted to do nothing without your consent. And yet, saying that he wants to do nothing, he also says, I'm sending him back. So clearly Philemon didn't say, okay, Paul, keep him here, because then doing nothing without your consent would be keeping him here. So we have this situation where they're separated, slave is separated from the master, and the master did not plan on this. And now somebody who would do nothing without his consent is sending him back. So apparently that's the obvious thing to do. Furthermore, he says, I appeal to you, this is Paul talking, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. He's appealing to him, and yet he's in advocating for him. He's saying he was useless. Okay, if you're advocating for somebody, if you're going to bat for somebody and you say they were useless, it's probably because they were kind of useless. And so this is not somebody who's in Philemon's good graces. This is not a, a slave that Philemon's happy with. And he also says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, so there's the possibility, possibly there might be the certainty, that he's stolen from him that there's some, s s he's betrayed him in some way. 
So these are kind of the pieces of the puzzle that we look at. Um, there are actually several different guesses as to what could be going on in this letter. Most people, including me, tend to assume what happened is Onesimus was Philemon's slave. He ran away, separated. Somehow got to Paul in a different city. And Onesimus very likely stole some money on his way out. Um, that is, that's what I'm going to assume for the rest of this sermon. But I just kind of want to show my work of how we kind of figure these things out in Scripture. And this problem was a very severe problem. It had very severe consequences, not only for Onesimus, not only for Philemon, even for Paul. So for Philemon, whatever money uh, he had spent on Onesimus is now lost. I know that as Americans we're not crying over that, but moreover, it means he, he's a potential laughingstock. In a society where everybody knows your business, now it's like, oh, Philemon, you can't keep your house in line. Philemon got swindled by a slave might not advise doing business with that incompetent fool. The expectation, the very distinct expectation that Philemon's business partners, that Philemon's neighbors, whose livelihood also rides on slave labor, would be that Philemon's going to take care of this. When I was prepping for this sermon, I was uh, reading a speech made about the time Paul wrote this letter, issue was that a man in charge of administrating the city of Rome was killed in his sleep by a slave. The, uh, the Senate was investigating this, and Senator Gaius Cassius there was speaking because the, the Roman law at that time was, oh, a slave killed his master in his master's house. So what do you think happens when a slave kills a master in his master's house? you would think that, oh, maybe the slave dies. You'd be correct, but you'd be f not all the way there. What actually happens is every slave in the entire household dies. Now, if that seems a little extreme to you, Gaius will help us out. Oh, too far. I'm quoting him. <coughs> Who shall find in his domestics, when even fear for themselves cannot make them note our dangers, do you believe that a slave took the resolution of killing his master without an ominous phrase escaping him, without a word uttered in rashness? Assume, however, that he, that he, he kept to himself, that he procured his weapon in an unsuspecting household. Could he pass the watch, carry in his light, and perpetrate his murder without the knowledge of a soul? A crime has many antecedent symptoms. In other words, you should be able to see this coming. So long as our slaves disclose them, disclose those, those symptoms, those warning signs, we may live solitary amid their numbers. But now, remember, what, what's the question we're asking? How do we live with, how do we love people who are different from us? Listen to uh, Gaius Cassius' answer. But now that our households comprise nations, with customs the reverse of our own, with foreign cults or with none, you will never coerce such a medley of humanity except by 
terror. This, we're not talking about his slave. We're talking about somebody else's slave that he wants dead. That he wants the entire group of them dead because some of them might not have sent a warning. Because the tools don't work, we throw them out. This is the world that our brother Philemon lived in. No wealthy citizen in the empire had any notion that everyone's slaves were only their own business. None of Philemon's wealthy peers would have looked at Philemon with indifference. No one would have said, it's your problem, not mine. They would have expected him to do something about it. If my slave sees your slave running away, he might get ideas. You're going to take care of this Philemon, right? You better deal with this slave or we might have to deal with you. So what were some of the options on the table? What are some ways that a slave owner as Philemon might have taken care of this? What were, at a minimum, a severe beating. That's, that's a severe beating. He's probably not going to walk for a couple of days, but he'll get the idea. Maybe. You know, maybe if he doesn't get the idea, another option is you could brand the word fugitive on his forehead with a hot iron. That was one thing that was commonly done. This is another option thought up by a guy named Zoninus. He put this on at least one of his slaves. We have this preserved. The, that thing says in Latin or Greek, I have run away. Catch me. If you take me back to my master Zoninus, you'll be rewarded. And uh, that's an iron collar. That's not the sort of thing that you slip on and off. That's kind of the point. And then, of course, if you really want to make a point, if you, you do what many slave owners did to runaway slaves or rebellious slaves, like in this case. You hang them up to die on a cross. You send a message, this is what happens to people who don't play ball. The cross was a disgusting message that said, this is what happens to people who don't know their place. This is what happens to people on the bottom who tried to get to the top and they lost. How can we coerce such a medley of humanity except by terror? These are the pressures on our brother Philemon. These are the prospects for Onesimus. And it's falling into Pastor Paul's lap to answer this complicated question. How do I reconcile these brothers? Earlier in his life, Paul had written that there was no, that in Christ there was no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free. And yet, what does that really look like when there really is a slave who ran away from a real master, who really might have already hired headhunters to go find him? Paul doesn't know. How do we love church members who are very, very different from us? How does Paul, a free man, love Onesimus, a slave? How does Paul, a prisoner, engage Philemon, the wealthiest state owner? How does Paul put pen to paper and engage this problem? By not engaging the problem, but by engaging the person. 
See, the trap that we often fall into, the trap that I kind of led you into, is by only telling you one thing about Philemon, that he was a slave owner. Paul knows Philemon better than that. Read with me. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So most likely, Aphia was uh, Philemon's wife. That would explain why she was called out directly in the letter. Archippus was probably Philemon's son. And also, whatever decision Philemon makes is going to have major implications on them. And so Paul's addressing them directly. But he doesn't say Aphia, Philemon's wife. He says Aphia, our sister. He doesn't say Archippus, Philemon's son. He says our fellow soldier. And he says, I'm writing this to the church in your house. Your house. Remember, Philemon's wealthy. And also remember that your personal business is not just your personal business. He opened up his house for his brothers and sisters to meet. He hosted the church. And when I say he hosted the church, I don't mean deep down in secret in his basement. Because basements weren't really a thing. You know what was a thing? Front porches. Um, I was looking at paintings that depicted this story about Jesus. And the Renaissance writers, who normally get Jesus all wrong, they sometimes get architecture very right because they lived in a time without air conditioning. And so if you were wealthy and you're hosting a dinner party, it looked kind of like this. It looked like an outdoor party or, or like if you've ever opened up your garage because you're trying to fit 20 loud people in to watch a soccer game and the whole neighborhood knows about it that's this that is the church meeting in Philemon's house and that means Philemon would have hosted not Paul uh, I won't get into that uh, Paul hadn't been directed to Philemon City but um, a friend of Paul's uh, had named, named Erastus this message of the slave is our there is no slave, there is no free, might have gotten preached, maybe there. We, we can only speculate, but the point is, Philemon had already risked his public reputation for the sake of Christ. I've got this picture up there because if you know this story about Jesus, this woman comes in to the house, of, he's dining with Simon the Pharisee. This uninvited woman comes in to the meal. How does an uninvited woman come into a meal when the meal's outside and everyone can see who you're eating with? And, and that's Philemon. Out in the street, he is meeting with brothers and sisters, Jews and Gentiles, in his city, proclaiming this gospel and letting it be proclaimed and identified with his business. Let's keep reading. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Okay, when he says sharing of your faith, he's not saying talking about Jesus to strangers. Uh, that other translations have said the fellowship of your faith. 
What he means here by the sharing of your faith is sharing what you have with your brother and sister. Uh, it's the type of sharing where somebody says, wow, I'm glad they're saved because I benefit from it. And I don't mean that selfishly. I mean that joyously. Like, I'm, I'm glad that Evan is saved because I get to hear his sermons almost every week. I, and, and I could go on and on and on the list. But that's what the sharing of your faith means. Because you're a Christian, Philemon, they have a place to meet. And because you're a Christian, Philemon, they have the joy and the comfort from you that I have from you. For I've derived much joy and comfort from you, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. It's a very specific word. Paul only uses it four times, and he uses it twice here. And so I bolded it, and I underlined it. And the question is why? And the answer is, I'll tell you later. So be waiting for that. Paul is gushing here. And so, when he says, Philemon, you have been a blessing to me in Christ, he doesn't just stop there. He says, you know who else has been a blessing to me? Onesimus. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, okay? This is Father's Day, and Paul, who we don't know that he had any biological children, as Evan made mention to you earlier, has this spiritual child. Uh, almost certainly that means that this child that became, he became in my imprisonment probably means Paul preached Jesus to Onesimus, and Onesimus responded in repentance and belief. And so Paul is saying, I'm appealing to you for my, not your tool, but my child. He's saying, this man, I won't even call him a slave, this man this man is my son. Look at verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He is changed. The name that he fell short of before, he fulfills now. Furthermore, if Onesimus is a runaway, this probably makes life a lot more complicated for Paul, who's already on the wrong side of the law. Ask yourself this, as you engage with believers with different backgrounds, as Paul is a free man in prison engaging with a slave who's not in prison, Paul who committed no crime is in prison, Onesimus who did commit a crime is not in prison, what's your heart toward them? Do you see the comfort and the joy and the fellowship that Paul sees in Philemon? Do you see the repenting, profitable son that Paul sees in Onesimus? I mean, I'm not asking you to make something up that's not there. But like Paul does in verse 3, when you see something that is there, do you call it out? Do you thank God for it? It's something that we do in our elders' meetings every time is early on in the meeting, Evan will say, so what can we thank God for among our people? What do we see God doing? Evan's not asking us to lie and turn a blind eye. He's actually saying, look and see what God is doing in his Holy Spirit through his people. So, and that's not just being nice, that's being honest, if you actually learn to look for it. So I can thank God when I see my sister sing with joy and passion, knowing full well this is not a song she would pick, but it still tells of the gospel she loves. I thank God when I see a member who feels like she's struggling to keep her head above water with her own kids, giving sacrificially to care not only for her own kids, but the kids of her brothers and sisters. 
I thank God when a brother or sister holds a strong conviction until the scripture persuades them otherwise and they respond in obedience. I thank God when I see a brother or sister run toward run courageously toward grace-filled conflict and or sincere repentance when it would be easier to just lose their temper and blow up or lose their interest and check out. I'm not saying that in the abstract. I have names and faces of so many of you. There is not a line I just said that I couldn't put a name to that face, that I couldn't put a name to that line. Usually several. I'm not saying y'all are perfect. I'm saying y'all are being made perfect, and I can see the progress. And that's what Paul is saying to Philemon. He's not telling the slave owner that you've got it all together. He's saying to the slave owner, I've got hope for you, because I've got hope for the God who saved you. When you learn to see that way, you're seeing glimpses of future beauty. We're getting a taste of a future feast, a blessed peak at a coming spectacle that deep down we are longing for. This is what Romans 8.19 says when it says, For the creation, that's us, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's also us. If, if you're in Christ, that's you. First John explains, see what kind of love the Father Happy Father's Day, everybody. See the kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Not so we shall be. So we are. So when you're dealing with the Onesimus and the Philemon in your life, when you're dealing with the brother or sister that is making your life complicated, that is costing you dearly, that has betrayed you, that has let you down, that won't listen to you, that doesn't understand you, and you can't understand them. Do you know who you're dealing with? If they're in Christ, you are dealing with a shadow of future glory. That creation just waiting to be revealed, and it can't quite stay just entirely hidden behind the curtain. You can kind of see it, that light starting to peek out of that spectacle one day you're going to see in full. First John continues, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We're going to be glorious because we're going to be like him. And the glory that I see in you now not perfectly. I'm not, I'm not making stuff up. My wife will tell you I have a low BS tolerance. I am not saying something that's not true. But the glory that I see in you is that glory I'm one day going to see in full. But I get kind of excited when I, when I see the trailer to the movie. Because I'm not just seeing you. I'm seeing Christ in you. That affection that I have for you is the affection that I have for Christ in you. And that, and it doesn't drive us away from conflict, it drives us toward the conflict. It drives us toward the conflict in this attitude of that thing, that sin, that, that slave ownerness, that runawayness that I see in you. I want to see less of that because I want to see more of you. And I want to see more of you because I want to see more of Christ in you. So please don't do the thing. Please don't do the thing where people say, 
well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. I mean, do you like Christ? Do you have affection for Christ? Then you should have affection for a believer who you would say is actually in Christ, is actually repenting. Who is actually being worked on in all good things. This is what this verse means. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul's not saying this about everybody. Okay, if you're not a believer, I'm not talking about you. If you think you're a believer, but you're not, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who are going to be the sons of God revealed. I'm talking about the people that God is working on who are repenting, who are following him. That's who I'm talking about. And for those people who are called according to his purpose, all things work out too good. And what's the good? The good is not you getting a higher paycheck. The good is not you having an easier life. The good is that you would be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And if you think I just got distracted with all that Romans 8, 1 John stuff and I've just kind of lost the text, it's right here. We're here back in Philemon. For this perhaps, he does some perhaps in here, this perhaps is why he was parted from you a while, that you might have him back forever. It would be easy for Paul to say, I've got my own legal problems, uh, Onesimus, you have no idea what's going to happen to me if I'm seen cavorting with a runaway slave, if I'm seen supporting this in any way. I just can't deal with this right now. Paul doesn't see his moment. Paul sees Onesimus' eternity. Paul sees Philemon's eternity. And he's excited. Because he knows what they're going to be. And when you think like this, you do have to do some perhapsing. Because you, you don't get to say, well, it'll all work out in the end. You get to say, all things are working out to good. All things are conforming you, are conforming him, are conforming me to be like him. All things are doing that. And maybe this is what's going on here. I, like, I don't know. I'm not a prophet, but perhaps, perhaps this is what God's doing. Perhaps this is a momentary affliction that's leading to an eternal weight of glory. And perhaps, just maybe I'm praying this is how. This is how you see conflict when everything is on the line through the lens of the gospel. How, and by, just to warn you guys, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not finished because there's going to be some details here. When we deal with our brother and our sister who is different, who is inconvenient, who is worrisome, this is the person we're dealing with, nothing less. And I will take one just brief tangent off of the text to say this. I hope that somewhere deep inside you, you can get excited about this. So even though it's, even though it's painful, even though it's inconvenient, even though it's, it's worrisome, I hope in some way you're not saying, well, I mean, it's all going to work out good in eternity. See, having eyes on eternity is not taking the eyes off of what's going on. Eyes on eternity is saying this world doesn't matter because it'll all be taken care of there. If that was what Paul was teaching, he wouldn't have written this letter. He's going to tell Philemon, in this world, in these concrete circumstances, this is what you do in this world in light of that world. And so if you have, if you have no passion for that, if, you, if, you, if you're not 
on any level interested in thinking, what might God be calling me, even if it costs me greatly? What might God be doing in me? What might God be doing in my brother and sister? What is God up to? What are his plans? If that doesn't interest you, or if you say, that caught, that's too uncomfortable, that's too inconvenient, I'm not interested in the cost of investing in my brother and sister. If it costs me something, check me out. I'm not interested in, what God, in being a part of what God is doing. That is a biblical option. To say I'm not interested in what God is doing is a biblical option. The name for that biblical option is hell. There is no category for a disinterested Christian. There is a huge category for a complicated Christian. Everyone in this book is complicated. Everyone in this book has issues. Everyone in this book has screwed up. And everyone in this book is moving toward a God who moved toward them. Everyone in this book is moving toward a God who takes up his cross and follows them. So if, if, that's not, if that's not in any way what you're interested in, then I don't care how moral you are. The, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven before you. The, the slave-owning Philemons, the runaway Onesimuses are going into the kingdom of heaven before you because they're going toward him and you're not. And I, I had to throw that warning in before I jump back into the text because I need to state clearly in our culture what Paul assumes in his, that you do not get a piece of this without getting the whole thing. Now, that doesn't excuse any brutality that Philemon might come in as a slave owner. It doesn't excuse any treachery by Onesimus. We, we, we don't get to say that that doesn't matter. We're actually saying it matters even more than we thought. But Paul knows this. Paul has seen fruit in both of these men, and he has a reason to believe that God is at work in them, just as God is at work in him. And he expects God to work this way in their life because God has worked this way in his life. I don't have it on the screen, but if you guys have your Bibles open, look at verse 24 and never ignore the, last, the first or last verses of the book of the Bible. Because I want you to notice in verse 24, I want you to notice one name. Mark. If you don't know that name, uh, there's a story in Acts chapter 15 where Paul splits up with a close friend named Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's mentor. Barnabas went to the mat for Paul when no one else would. Barnabas was his partner in mission. But there was this one episode when Mark let them both down. He, he ditched out on them. One might say that Mark was supposed to serve them and ran away. Time comes around again later for Barnabas and Paul to go on a second journey and a sharp disagreement arises. Barnabas wants to give Mark a second chance. Paul says, absolutely not. Barnabas, if you go with him, you don't go with me. And Paul parts with his best friend. Barnabas picks the runaway over Paul. And so Paul parts with his best friend, possibly, we don't know, possibly for the last time. Uh, we never see Barnabas again, but we do see Mark. Here in Philemon, we see a Mark willing to be associated with a prisoner. A Mark who was formerly useless, it's now useful. And we have a new Paul with a new category who can say, 
perhaps this is why he was parted from you, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. A changed Paul is dealing with a changed Mark and a changed Onesimus and a changed Philemon because these, these are the persons he is dealing with. And so he doesn't just give Philemon instructions, he gives him a path forward. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. As Americans, we're expecting Paul to say, set Onesimus free, but Paul doesn't actually say that because things are a bit more complicated. He says, receive him as you would receive me. Give me the debt that he has earned. And give him the favor that I have earned in your life. Do you see how that's so much greater than freedom? Uh, for Philemon to set an infamous free might have actually meant quite little. To say, okay, I, I forgive him, but I don't want any part of him. You know, I'm, I'm not going to punish him. Look at how Christian I am, Paul. I, I, I would be in my rights to beat him, and I'm letting him free. Most likely to go join himself to another slave owner who would probably be even more abusive. I don't know that Philemon was abusive, but, but I would guess Onesimus would not run away from the world's best slave owner. He doesn't say set him free so that he's no part of you. He says make him your brother. As Americans, we love being free. As Christians, we love being joined. We love being bound to one another. We love the sharing of our faith, which means the sharing of our life with our brother or sister who has nothing in common with us but the gospel. We love to refresh one another. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your own self. In other words, what you owe me, give to him. What you owe him, give to me. Does it sound like an old, old story you might have heard at some point? Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. There's that word again. Refresh. He said it twice now. I wonder what that word means. It's actually a Greek word that I cannot pronounce, but I can explain. It basically means to, um, to cease from labor, which is an odd thing to say to a slave owner. What it literally means, some of you will see where I'm going with this, what that word literally means is to give rest. And if you're guessing where I'm going with this, you're right. Because there's another place that word shows up. That same word shows up in the mouth of Jesus. When he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we love church members who are different from us? Not, be, not by giving them rules and instructions, but by giving them a person and by calling them into more fully into that person. How do we love church members who are different from us? We love church members who are different from us by playing the Jesus role. So look at Philemon. 
What's Paul saying to Philemon? He's saying, I, I see in you, Philemon, you have refreshed me. You have given me rest. I've seen those shimmers of future glory shining out from you. Who, you who shines out with future glory, shine out all the more. Let he who refreshes the saints refresh me all the more. I don't want less of you, Philemon. I want more of you. Philemon, there will be consequences for how you respond. And here's what I'm begging you to do. I want you, as a slave master, to show yourself as a son of your master in heaven. With the whole world watching, I want you to tell your runaway slave, who made you look bad to your business partners, who cost you on your bottom line, who stole money from right under your nose, tell him, tell him, come unto me. You who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Philemon, I want you to play the Jesus role. And what has Paul told Onesimus? Paul, Paul tells Onesimus, I've done my best. I have weighed every word of this letter as carefully as I could. But I don't know how this is going to go. I'm praying Philemon responds well, but I don't know that. I'm praying his community doesn't turn into a lynch mob, but I don't know that. I'm praying you don't end up like so many other slaves hanging, dying on a tree because they rebelled against their masters. I'm praying that doesn't happen, but I don't know that. My son, my heart, all I know is this. You were useless. Now you're useful. And even if the worst happens, in the hands of the God I serve, even a man dying on a tree can be very, very useful. And I want you to set your face toward that city, which may hate you. Because I want you to play the Jesus role. And as Paul calls these men toward godliness, what is he doing more than everything else? Does he say, do it because I'm an apostle? No. He says, I could order you, but I won't. I could introduce myself as an apostle, which I am, but I'm going to introduce myself this way. I'm an old man in prison who can't really do much. There is no form nor comeliness that you should desire me. But I'll tell you this. This man in chains is asking you to give him Onesimus' debt. This man in chains is asking you to take all your love for me and pour it out on him. This man in chains is begging you to let me play the Jesus role. You see, we're doing this series on church matters because this, at its heart, is what the church is. It's the body of Christ made up of the people of Christ, the persons of Christ with their varying different backgrounds from all sorts of situations and all sorts of reasons to not get along and to go their separate ways and yet we're being made into something very much different. We're being made into that thing very much together. At great cost to ourselves. There's not a person in this letter that doesn't have skin in the game. Paul is saying, yeah, I'll pay it. Whatever he's cost you, I'll pay it. Put that on me. He's asking Philemon to risk the ire of his entire community on a slave. And he's asking Onesimus to risk his very life going back to a master. This is the cost that, he is, that Paul is calling himself and everyone else to because it's the cost that Jesus said, take up your cross.
us follow me take your cross on the way to the crown this is our differences and our delight are because we can show the different faces of the glory of the son who died and rose again when Paul talks to a slave and to a master, he doesn't tell the master to stop being a master. He tells the master to be a master like Jesus. He tells the slave to be a slave like Jesus. And he, and he tells himself, the prisoner, to be a prisoner like Jesus. Because you don't see Jesus by looking at a Christian. You, look, you see Jesus by seeing Christians. You see Christians who can say, chains shall he break. For the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppressions shall cease. Not because he calls us to freedom, but because he calls us to himself, because he calls us to each other. Behold, what great love is lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. That is what we are. And we know not what we shall be. Only that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Let us pray. Hodges, kids, close your eyes. God, I pray that we would increasingly see you as you are, including in the faces of our brothers and sisters. I pray that we would see and celebrate those shimmers of future glory. I pray that as it is needed, we would not run from conflict caused by our differences, but run toward conflict empowered by our differences with a heart to our brothers or sisters glory a glory of you they can show that we cannot i pray that our hearts could speak with excited anticipation as we call out even grievous sin not forgetting the glorious person with whom we have to with whom we have to do but saying of their sin in effect sister i want to see less of this because i long to see more of you brother i want to see more of you because i long to see more of christ Thank you for the honor to love not despite our differences, but because of them. Thank you for the manifold differences of our body that can show the manifold splendor of our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.